Before we get started, we want to thank our Patreon supporters and remind everyone that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a recurring donation at patreon.com slash bigbio. Or instead, consider making a one-time contribution at our website, bigbiology.org. We'd really prefer not to sell bedsheets or energy drinks to keep episodes coming, but we need support for our producers and interns, most of whom are students. A different but also a very important way to help us out is to spread the word about Big Biology. Recommend the podcast to a friend or family member, or just share your thoughts about episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to get these ideas out to as many people as possible, and social media is a great way to do that. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and comment on it rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic or just have thoughts about past episodes, get in touch. You can do that on our social media pages or the email addresses on our website. Also, a reminder that we'll soon be recruiting interns for season five. If you're interested in helping us make Big Biology, contact us at info at bigbiology.org. There's a small stipend attached to the position, and as importantly, the chance to get heavily involved in all parts of production, from script writing to social media. And finally, if you like Big Biology, then why not check out another interesting biology podcast, DNA Today. Does genetics fascinate you? Of course it does. You're listening to Big Biology. Discover new advances, DNA, in the world of genetics with DNA Today. This podcast explores genetic technology, home DNA kits, CRISPR, rare diseases, groundbreaking research, and more. For a decade, DNA Today has brought you the voices of genetic pioneers. There are over 175 episodes, so plenty to keep you entertained and updated about genetic news. The show is a fan favorite, winning the People's Choice Best Science and Medicine Podcast Award for the past two years. DNA Today is hosted by a genetics expert, Kira Deneen, who helps you understand genetic complexities. Learn more at dnapodcast.com and subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this one. And now, here's the show. Hey, Art, if I asked you to name the fundamental properties of life, what would you say? Uh, okay, ask me. Ooh. Uh, right, good question. In fact, this is one that I often ask intro bio classes. And here are a few obvious properties. The fundamental unit of life is the cell, and the bigger things are made up of collections of cells. Those cells have membranes, which separate their insides from their outsides. They have genomes, which contain genes, which... Energy for driving reactions and movement is distributed in the form of ATP. Cells yeah, 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 yeah. We know basically. all of these things. But today on the show, we're going to talk about another fundamental property of life that doesn't receive nearly the attention it deserves. Branching. The structure of the networks that distribute energy, materials, and information through all living things. The most obvious distribution network in we vertebrates is the cardiovascular system. Each network has a pump, the heart, that sends blood through a giant pipe, the aorta, that then branches repeatedly into smaller arteries, eventually arriving at the smallest units, the capillaries, where blood exchanges respiratory gases, metabolic substrates, and information-bearing molecules, uh, hormones, nerd boy, with local tissues. That blood then exits the capillaries into small veins, which then come together into larger veins, a kind of reverse branching, until the blood is back where it started, in the heart. As the blood moves through this branching circuit, it passes through other organs, lungs, kidneys, liver, etc., and delivers fuels, removes waste, replenishes nutrients, and generally helps keep the organism alive. The cardiovascular system is only one of many such branching networks in living things. Others are the lymphatics, critical to immune defense, the water and nutrient delivery systems inside plants, and the neural connections inside our brains. 
There are even branching networks inside single cells, which aren't built from tubes, but instead cytoskeletal components, and they still move resources and waste around. Our guest today, Van Savage, is a professor in the Departments of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Department of Biomathematics at UCLA. Among a broad set of interests, Van studies the properties of branching networks across biological systems. Van's interested in the particulars of a few particular systems, including the cardiovascular system, but he and his colleagues have also been trying to identify the universal principles that govern the structure and function of all branching networks. On the show today, we talk about these universal principles, including one of the most central ones that branching bio-networks typically are space-filling. This means that they branch repeatedly so that they service the entire volume of the biological unit they occupy. Another universal principle is that networks are fractals, meaning that the patterns of branching appear similar whether you look closely at the smallest branches or step back to take in the overall view. And a final principle is that networks often have a kind of standardized smallest unit. For example, capillaries, which are more or less the same size everywhere in your body, are amazingly basically the same size across all mammals, mouse or moose. Beyond these basic principles, we also talk about how the properties of flowing fluids at different levels in the networks systematically alter network structure. And we discuss how properties of biological networks can be used to inform the design of engineered ones, like sewers and the internet. Sometimes indistinguishable. <laughs> uh, altogether, we hope that this episode causes your views on what's fundamental in biology to branch into some unexpected spaces. Oh boy. Okay. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. Van, thank you so much for joining us um, on Big Biology today. It's really exciting to get you on and look forward to talking about branching in biological systems. So you and your colleagues have thought deeply about branching and have tried to identify universal rules for how that branching occurs. In a recent paper in Royal Society Interface led by Alexander Brummer, you wrote that branching in plant and animal networks exhibit strikingly similar features despite profound physiological and environmental differences. So let's get into those universalities eventually, but let's start first with just what branching is. So branching, if you, uh, one of the easiest ways to see like a branching network around just to walk outside and see a tree or even just pull a leaf off the, off the tree and look at see all the veins inside the the leaf and you see lots of branching networks there so that's one of the most visible just every day outside see it kind of branching networks and the idea is you have a trunk you branch into smaller branches and you branch and branch all the way down to the um, final branches and the leaves and that allows the tree to capture light and transport water and sort of do all things it has to do in this larger volume without taking up the whole volume. But those kinds of branching networks occur all over biology, not just those really beautiful visible ones that the plants do for us, but also just in our own bodies, you know, our, from pumping the blood from the heart to the capillaries, the heart's like the trunk of the tree. We have to branch throughout the entire body and have capillaries close enough, you know, within short distance of every cell to feed it. So that's an enormous um, branching network. Even with, again, within our own bodies, you have things like the lymph system is also a branching network. Your brain, the, each neuron has a, has a branching system with dendrites to sort of pull in axons and axons go out to, you know, they have two different types of trees, each neuron. You have billions of neurons. So that, that's like billions upon the billions of trees and connections and networks just within the brain. It's not like one branching network. It's like, a, it's like billions of them. And then there's also probably 
at the level of single cells, even though we think of single cells as sort of like being these uh, sort of open bags, we do have gradients in the cell to push chemicals along. You have mitochondria that have invaginations and sort of create structure within the mitochondria. So even down to the subcellular level, we think there probably are these branching branching networks. Yeah, maybe let's just talk about branching in relation to this idea of, of space filling. And this, this sort of raises this question of, well, why all those examples you gave make it seem like everything in biology is sort of a branching structure, but like, why, why is that a thing? And why aren't there other kinds of distribution networks that are non-branching structures? That's a good question. So I guess to think about that, you can think about like, well, why, what, what would the contrast be? Like, what would a non-branching structure mean? And I guess there's two ways to think about it. One is, you know, you can think about what sometimes people call like a starburst network, where you'd have a heart and you'd have a vessel to every single cell individually, or you'd have a, a tree and you have like the ground, you have like a, a branch to every single leaf individually. So there's no branching. It's just everything has its own little core. And so the original ideas for why that wasn't the case is that just takes a, takes a lot more material to build that. You just have to you do a lot more building and just use a lot more material to construct it. So it's just not very efficient in terms of building it. But then also in terms of just like a lot of the theory that I and collaborators have done it's not energetically efficient either. You know, if you want to transport support some resource through fluid or through pumping, you also just burn a ton of energy that way as well. So it's just not an efficient way to do it in terms of energy and materials. And the other way, I guess, would be something like, that's sort of like maximally branching since there's no branching, it's just maximally tubes. The other thing would be sort of like there's no tubes, sort of like an open system. I hear about things like sponges, and I think some invertebrate sea creatures have something like more like that, like an open circulatory system, open systems to really dump everything in and sort of everything diffuses out. And that can work under certain settings, but it's difficult to scale, difficult to scale it in set size. So for example, one more one more branching network I didn't even mention is insects. They have this, uh, I think it's called spiracle system. But Tra- tracheal system, yeah. Tracheal system, exactly. Tracheal system, exactly. So they have holes outside of their body. Oxygen comes into the holes and they can use their legs like bellows to pump it in and it goes through a branch network itself. But the oxygen just goes by um, diffusion. It's not like a pumping system. So it's limited how far branch you can go. And that's thought that's one of the reasons like, you know, insect size is limited because it's hard to scale up that way if you're not... Uh not doing these more efficiently with energy or distribution of resources. Yeah. So to continue on with this space filling phenomenon, if that's the kind of intermediate of the extremes you just talked about, it's the intermediate that most living systems have arrived at. Is is it a sort of fractal process? Are the branches within those networks largely fractal? And if so, maybe just quickly, what is fractal? And then, you know, embellish in the plant or animal space, whichever example you want to use. Yeah, right. So, so first to unpack what space filling means, and then I'll go into fractal to, to really unpack it. So space filling, when I want to tell people what space filling is and just give the rough idea, I say, well, like if I want to think about my body, I don't want to have just like all my vessels just clustered in the middle of my chest because then my arms, my legs, my head won't get any blood and I won't be able to support them. So I have to fill the space. I have to have the network branch out in a way so they get a capillary close enough to every cell to feed it. So it has to fill the space in that sense, which intuitively makes sense. But when we say space filling in terms of the modeling, the math, we do mean something more exact. There's like a class of things we mean, and it, and it is encapsulated in terms of fractals. There's this idea of fractal space filling. And so a fractal is essentially that what I would say, it's a rule that repeats over and over across all scales. Mathematically, it's truly across all scales. Biologically or physically in the universe, we can't go across all scales. So it's sort of from your smallest scale to your biggest scale. It's, um, it's approximately the same pattern. And when we say that here, what we mean is, for example, we took a picture of the like last few branches on a tree and I blew it up and I made it look like the size of a big tree. 
would you be able to tell that that's actually a little small branch from a tree or that it actually was a, a big tree, right? If I maximize, if I just blew it up and tell you the scale, could you tell me the difference? And in some cases you probably could, but in a lot of cases you couldn't. And the idea, the reason you couldn't is because what you're looking for is to create a scale in your own head is you, you, look, you look at relative scale, right? You look at how does the smallest branch compare to the next smallest compare to the next smallest. So you're using a relative ruler by comparing the ratio or the proportional difference from the size of all different branches. So if those ratios and the proportions are the same from the, from the trunk of the tree all the way to the end, then I can't tell where I am in the system unless you tell me the scale. If you take a picture anywhere along the way and blow it up, I can't tell you where I am because they all look the same to me because all the relative scales and relative sizes are the same. So that's, that's really what a fractal is, that it keeps everything proportionally fixed as you go up and down in scale. Yeah, so, so the, the sort of beautiful place that I've, I've noticed fractal-like structures is um, if you walk along like a muddy stream bed, you see like little channels that are sort of going in that are just like little micro runoff channels. And those have like, to my eye, about the same shape as if you're like, you know, flying at 30,000 feet in a jet and you're looking down at these major river systems. And, uh, there's something like super beautiful about that that self-similarity. Absolutely. In fact, the first question you asked, and just then I almost mentioned rivers and I didn't, but I totally, rivers are one of the best examples, I think, because you can be like you say so high and see them or go so close up and see them and it's and it really looks like in a statistical sense on average like a fractal structure and people have used fractals to describe those are some of the first places people look so those are great examples another one is that people give sometimes like broccoli or cauliflower that if you like you know tear off a piece and piece and make it smaller and smaller it's still because it's not a structure it's not a branching structure but it still somehow has like a repeating pattern across scale yeah, I, I think I tried to explain fractality to my kids at some point using broccoli, and it lasted like three seconds before they. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it goes with kids, I find. So I want to ask a question about the the sort of physics of of liquid flow and the relationship of that to the possible fractal nature of, of cardiovascular systems. So, so I think what you're saying is like, you know, if, you, if we looked at the branching patterns of aortas and then looked at sort of mid-range vessels and then really small vessels and down to capillaries, there would be some kind of statistical similarity across those, those scales. But there must also be kind of systematic deviations in some way that depend on changes in the physics of flow at those different scales, right? So like water flowing at the smallest scales is not going to be the same as higher velocity turbulent flows in the biggest branches. And so are there systematic deviations across these networks? Yes, there are. That's a good question. And that, that there are. And so, so the cardiovascular system is a good example because there's actually like a break point between two halves of the system where you see, you see a big change, actually. So I'll answer that part first. And I'll come back to this sort of what we mean by generality equations. So essentially, for the there are two ways you can lose energy, even more than two, but two major ways you lose energy in the cardiovascular system. And one is due to what people call dissipation, which is friction. So just like the blood rubbing against the walls or against itself, that loses energy. The other way is um, due to reflections. When you have the blood going forward, you branch at a junction. If it's a pump and you get like a wave of blood, like a pulse, that wave can reflect backwards at the junction, just like a wave can reflect back to, at a shore or a pool. And that wave reflection also loses energy because it sort of stops the incoming blood and you sort of wasted blood pushing forward that now goes backwards. And it turns out that for small vessels, it's that friction and dissipation that's really important because it's more to do with the surface area, which is surface area to volume is much more important at the small scale. And at the large scale, you have the bigger, sort of the bigger waves, the wave-like phenomena is more important. That's where it first comes to the heart. That's where the flood reflections are more important. So actually, which energy loss dominates depends on scale. And so to minimize those reflections at a large scale, 
you need this area preserving branching, which means if I add up all the vessels at one level, the cross-sectional area, and compare it to the total cross-sectional area of the vessels at the previous level, they're equal. And da Vinci sort of noticed that in trees. But if you go to the smallest scale, you can't get rid of friction. Friction's there. But to minimize friction dissipation, you get what's called this cubic law or area increasing branching. So that total area of vessels increases one level to the next in a systematic way, this cubic law. And it's still fractal, but it's a different proportion that you see. And actually that is also what serves to let blood slow down because if you keep area fixed, the velocity stays constant, but the velocity does slow down to get from the heart to the capillaries. The area increasing also allows blood to slow down. It's like a, another necessary byproduct. So you do see large vessels and smallest vessels do scale differently. And, and you kind of need the blood to, to slow down, right? So that you have more time for exchange in these sort of most distal, smallest tubes. Exactly, that's right. For oxygen transfer to happen, that's right. Let, let's just talk about another mathematical aspect of this that is occurring to me. So so it, there, is there Hagen-Poise flow in these small tubes? And that that's like a, you know, radius to the fourth power kind of thing, right? And so that means that it's really hard for, for fluids to flow through the smallest tubes, right? And so you need many more of them. Is that is that how you, you make up for all of that extra friction? Yes. So basically you're right. So so it is the small scale is Hagen Poiseuille flow is goes like the length over the radius to the fourth, which is what you said is like the fourth power. So that's a strong dependence on the radius, exactly. So it makes it hard to go through. So to sort of let the um to keep the resistance or the impedance like sort of not just stopping everything down and creating huge problems. You have to increase the area to create a lot more lot small vessels to let, let the flow still be going through. And that's how you get the cubic law because the length part comes in there and sort of cancels out with one of the radius pieces and you have a R cube left over. So Van, I mean, maybe this is a little bit too much to ask of you because um, I, I get the impression that you were, you know, with mature adult organisms, but it's always been a sort of, I, I just can't see how we get to these complicated networks, you know, that are sort of fractal in nature when the starting point of all organisms is nothing like that. So what's the process by which everybody in this network agrees to be the size that it needs to be or learns to be the size that it needs to be when they're ultimately come to be really big branches and, you know, are small branches too? How much do we know about that? That's a great question. And the truth is, I don't think we have a really great answer to it yet. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I do know. Part of why I think it's interesting, just as an interesting basic science question, is you can imagine, right, that if you maximize, so the theory we do and the data we look at, you sort of have the system optimized for the adult. But as you grow, you think you'd want to optimize everywhere. Well, I don't know. This is the question. You might think you want to know, you want to optimize everywhere along the way, because you don't want to be doing really bad when you're a three-year-old, even if it's going to help you when you're an adult, if it's going to hurt you when you're three, it's not a good idea. So you kind of want to optimize for every step along the way, you'd think. But then if you optimize every step along the way, will that necessarily lead to optimal endpoint? That's not clear to me, actually. Both from mathematically and the data, it's not clear to me that that's actually what's happening. To what extent you're optimizing along the way and get to something close to an optimal endpoint, or that you're sort of the body sort of has a program to sort of trade off between those two as you go and try to get there. I think that's a fascinating question. I don't know the answer to that question. I, so I can say a little bit more though, which is that um, essentially how it works as we grow for at least our blood vessels, you know, our heart does increase in size. The capillaries stay basically fixed. So the small end is essentially what stays fixed in size. And the big vessels are what are growing at down levels as you go. And I, as I do the math, I've thought about more and more sort of years, 
you know, when I first started doing this, I think, well, I start with the heart and I sort of build from the heart. And of course you do have to have the heart. It has to be there. <laughs> but in reality, it's actually, it's more like it's you start from the capillaries or the smallest vessels and you build backwards the heart is really more how the whole development works and the whole system works, I would say, in terms of both the actual biology and the math. Do, do we know anything about the, I mean, the timing? Has anybody sort of taken snapshots along the way to see if the sort of next step from the capillaries is the first step to grow or... I would love to answer that question. I have not seen clean data on that. So I think where one of the best, place, best places to look would be in things like zebrafish, because zebrafish are transparent, and there are people who do use them as a model organism for vascular systems, and they do take images of the vascular system as they grow. So I think that would be a natural place to do this. And I have actually gotten some zebrafish data for like snapshots, but not like a developmental series. So yeah, so you're reminding me, that's a project I, someone else may do it, but that's a project I would love to do one day or be a part of one day, because I think that's the most tractable system, empirical system to answer it in. And I'd be really fascinated to see what happens. It seems like the kind of arena too, that it's going to be possible to make a lot of errors and, you know, really need to be sensitive to local conditions. So that suggests to me that this must be an incredibly labile capacity to, you know, grow and shrink the vasculature. And I, you know, I've, I've never seen, not my area, but I've never seen any literature talking about that, that kind of potential. They do, they just, even the growth process for vessels is essentially local. Like basically you have cells get added on that need oxygen. They start sending out signals and tumors work this way too, actually, in a large, large extent. They start sending out like VEGF signals asking for vessels to go towards them. They hit vessels. The vessels, usually the, at least my understanding is the point where the highest like sort of shear stress or shear strain, sort of sort of the more pressure, the most pressure on the, on the edge of the vessel tends to be the branch off point that starts growing towards that signal and branches out towards it, which is a very local process. And like you say, there, there must be noise in that system for like, you know, how things line up. And there is noise in the, and, you know, in the vascular data, I've looked at a lot of it now, there is noise in terms of asymmetric branching. And I mean, what, what we talked about in the model, like the averages in a sense, and we try to build variation around the averages, but there is, I mean, there is of course a lot of noise in the system and it's more like robustness around these averages. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Let's turn back to plants just for a moment. I want to ask a question that maybe sets up a contrast with the cardiovascular system we've just been talking about. So you, you mentioned these two modes of energy dissipation and I think those depend on having a, a pulsatile pump, whereas in plants, there's not a pulsatile pump. So is there not a, a kind of phase transition in plants? Is there more self-similarity across scales that way? So that's basically correct. So with a caveat, I'll say. So the flow in plants doesn't have the pulsatile wave nature, and it doesn't usually have as large. It can be large, actually, but not as large. So it's more like cognitive flow throughout. In which case you'd expect that sort of cubic law throughout and more, like you say, no phase transition, more like self-similar, the same type throughout the entire thing. And that's the original models. That's pretty much how they worked. The caveat to that that I'll add is work that I've done looking at essentially taper. So what you do, plants are also interesting because it's more like bundles of straws on top, on top of each other. Yeah, that's the thing. They, they don't have an aorta, right? It's like a bunch of smaller tubes. Exactly. Even at the trunk level, it's a bunch of smaller tubes. And there's sort of tubes stack on top of each other. So it's sort of two radius. It's like the radius of the full bundle of tubes and the radius of each individual tube. So that cubic law sort of works for the radius, the full bundle of tubes I was talking about. But if you look at the radius of each individual little tube in there, like the straw within the bundle of straws, there's what's called taper of that, where actually they are getting a little smaller as you go up. But that potentially is for different reasons, which has to do with like trying to prevent cavitation. So having problems like air bubbles that create trouble and blockage, negative pressure to help pull the 
the water up in a sense, or the sap up in the, in the first place. So there's different reasons why that tapers. I think. And maybe let's just dwell on that for a second. So is, is that cavitation problem? Is that why plants don't have like really giant xylem tubes at the bottom? Like, you know, aorta-like xylem tubes. It's because it's too easy to get air bubbles to, to pop into those. That's right, exactly. I mean, at least that's the that's the theory, and that's what empir- empirically it seems to be borne out. But that's exactly right. They, they don't want to get too big at the bottom, or else you're going to have problems with air bubbles and cavitation. That's right, exactly. Okay, okay, got it. All right, so a minute ago, when we asked you about, you know, branching generally, you brought up unicellular organisms and mitochondria and such. But let's let's go back to those, because I think we want to move towards universality, and maybe we enter this group of organisms into the mix before talking about similarities, broad similarities, uh, as we can do. So tell us a little bit more about how branching works. Again, I think that's one of the great frontiers of things to figure out. Like, <laughs> I haven't said that for a long time. There, there are people doing more and more, like Chris Kempies, for example, is doing a lot on... Um, energetics and scaling of cellular structures, like how do the, the number of ribosomes, different proteins scale, how does that be energetic? So getting at questions that way about components, but in terms of actual physical structures and how those gradients and mitochondrial imaginations create like branching networks, I think we're still, I mean, I see these beautiful movies sometimes of these mitochondria, dynamic mitochondria moving, they're beautiful, but how to translate into the mathematics we have, I still don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anyone does at this point. I do believe there's structure there, but I don't think we're at the point yet where we have the data or the theory to match it up to make it clean. But we can look at how components and proteins and ribosome scale and the energetics and, and see that there's nice clean scaling relationships come out of that. So there's something there's something going on there. Does, does transport on the cellular sort of cytoskeletal network, is would you consider that to be a branching process? I think so. I, so, I mean, I do think so, yes. And again, I'd like to have a more quantitative well-defined statements to support that we actually had like measurements somehow this was called scale like how many branchings how much stuff's going along it write down the theory for it so i do think so and when i even like 20 years ago i was trying to like work with people and find data and get more to that kind of thing but i never came to fruition essentially to be continued <laughs> so um i mean i guess one more step on the way to this conversation about universality what about the fluid that's being moved i mean largely so far, we've been talking about water in plants and animals, not not solely, but largely. Um, but we could be talking about air, right? Are, are there differences, fundamental differences in air and water networks, plants or animals? Yeah, that's a good question, too. So I think, because you're right, it could be water, it could be blood, it could be air, it could be electricity, electric signals within the brain. And when I feel like this is even in papers, I often have this issue to try to explain it. When we say these follow similar rules or patterns or equations, what do we really mean? And so the equations for airflow or fluid flow, whether it be blood or water, are these, you know, sort of, I'll call them, not, they're not magical, but these are very famous kind of magical equations, the Navier-Stokes equations um, that describe fluid flow in general. And basically, most of the equations for elect- electricity and circuits, electric flow, were based on fluid mechanics equations. They're sort of analogs to fluid themselves. So a lot of the basic equations are the same, meaning the things you start with, your starting point in the math and physics right down are the same. But that doesn't mean the end point is the same, because as we've already talked about, even in the, in the blood, you can have large vessels and small vessels acting differently because of different properties of the vessels. You can have, as I already mentioned, turbulence come up, right? If you have turbulence come up, that creates totally different issues. And so there's many different limits and phases of the Navier-Stokes equations. So even though the equations are the same, because there are these equations that are really beautiful that capture so much, you can definitely reach different different conclusions and limits based on what 
what you put in there. And so, for example, like comparing air to um, water, one of the most natural differences is just like, you know, viscosity or um, density come into those equations in a very important way. And the viscosity and density of like air versus blood or water is going to be very different. Um, so that's going to change kind of what results you get or what conclusions you get out of it. And then also like, you know, talk about plants, you know, bundle of straws versus big, big vessels that affects the sort of resistance calculations you get out or a probability of turbulence, things like that as well. So you do get differences for all those reasons, even though actually the fundamental equations we start from are almost always the same. So one, one piece about that, that's, I mean, well, I'll just ask you what, what you're perspective is because the equations don't really know anything more than we tell them we want to be in them. There's a big difference between air and blood in the sense that blood has lots and lots of roles. It's not just its viscosity. It's, you know, it's not just its physical properties. Blood does a lot more stuff. Air is air. I mean, how is that accounted for? How do, how do we think about that? And fair enough. Our carbon dioxide and oxygen, it's not just one thing. Yeah, I was about to object there, Marty. Come on. That's about to say okay, 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 okay. <laughs> I saw the look on you guys' face. I think you're doing a disservice to air there. I think it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm with Van on this. I think air has a lot of stuff in it. But I guess uh, I still say a little bit more there, which is blood is different in an important way. I didn't say, even before I get to what I think you're hinting at, which is that blood has, one thing blood has in it is red blood cells and white blood cells which is not just like a liquid or air. Like it actually is particle. It's like, you know, little balls, little particles like that are floating around in there. And it's the smallest scale, like in capillaries, those uh, red blood cells are a huge chunk of what's going through the cap. It's like, you know, a little blood cell, a little fluid. Little so it's not like just like a negligible piece, like in the heart where it's like a fluid. And if you look closely, you see the cell. The cell's a big part of what's going on there. So that has different fluid flow properties because it's not even really a fluid anymore. It's something in between a fluid and a, a solid with all those blood cells. But then you're asking, I think, which is, you know, those blood cells may carry oxygen, but blood also carries sugars. It carries um, white blood cells, the immune system, all kinds of other things as well. How do you, yeah, so all kinds of things. So how do you factor that in? And the truth is, I would say from the theory perspective, I'm going to do maybe do a disservice to our theory here, but then I'll try to recover it, which is we sort of sort of just assume that's all along for the... Uh, the ride in a sense, like oxygen is the fundamental thing that we do focus on in terms of thinking about metabolism and transfer and even lungs and things like that. So oxygen is the main focus and we sort of do assume everything else sort of piggybacking on top of that. Now that may not be totally fair. Like in, in insects, there's the oxygen system, but they also do have a sugar, like a sugar fluid branching system separate from that as well. That's a, that has a heart to it, I believe. So that it shows you can separate the two. So in that sense, I think you're, it's true what you're saying, that blood does do more than just air. <laughs> and the theory, though, it, it does, it kind of says, well, blood's important. We're going to say it's important for oxygen. And given you have to get blood to all these places, how do you do it? And then we don't worry that much about the sugars or the immune system or things like that. And if we do, we sort of then go back and say, well, isn't it cool those things are along for the ride? What does that tell us about them being along for the ride? Let's, let's hit this universality idea a little harder. Um, I feel like what we've done is talked about a lot, lots of different kinds of variation, right? So differences in the thing that's flowing and differences among taxa and differences across body size to an extent. And if you had to just identify what are the universal 
commonalities across these networks. What are they? And you know, you also brought up the Navier-Stokes equations, and, and so maybe the answer is that it all sort of derives from that. But if, if you had to sort of take apart that that mathematical statement, like what what does it mean for these things to share characteristics? So I think about universality. A big one, I think, actually, is that the terminal units seem, tend to be the same size across scales. Like if you look at uh, capillaries in a mouse or an elephant, they're roughly the same size. If you look at petioles, so the final branch that goes into a leaf across trees, different sizes, they're not exactly the same size, but they're roughly the same size. So one type of universality is that sort of the end point is almost always like constant. You're scaling up everything else around it and just increasing the number of endpoints. Another type of um, universality is the space filling which I don't think I, which I sort of define roughly and then define fractal, but I don't think I ever like put it back together to say, how does that work? So the space filling for the fractal, what it really means is that you sort of fill space at every level, um, which isn't true, obviously, at the extreme. But if you think about like a, um, a tree, the idea is you're filling space with leaves to get as much light as possible. And if you go one layer in from that, you want to have it almost fill space as well so you can sort of attached to that other bigger filled space, but also to put leaves inside of that to capture the light you miss. So you're trying to like collect as much light as possible. So you're like a light collection is what you're doing. Whereas like for the blood system, it's not collecting, it's delivering, but you're trying to deliver the resources everywhere, right? So there's space filling because you're trying to maximally either push stuff out or pull stuff in. And so pushing stuff out and pulling stuff in is a very different process when you're trying to get rid of it or bring it in. But the idea you're filling the space around you to do that in is the similar concept. That's the universality. And then um, and the last thing you said, which is the Navier-Stokes equations, I think that's right, that that's a similar starting point for all kinds of fluid flow and airflow in terms of the, the physical equations, which is just sort of a deep thing about physics, I'd say. And you do get differences that come in, as we already talked about, the biology and the um, viscosity, things like that. But sort of, you do have your universe, universal principles to the Navier-Six equations themselves. There's only so many forms of resistance and turbulence you can get. So it creates a, a small sort of set of options to choose from. Now, I had this completely off-topic thing, which you can cut later if you want to. But <laughs> <laughs> off-topic's good. I had this memory this morning when I looked at the questions, I was thinking Navier-Stokes equations. And I was thinking, where did I first learn that? And actually, where I first learned it was um, in high school. And I was in this summer this summer camp for, I, was, I grew up in Mississippi, and it's a thing called Mississippi Governor's School. And I was in this uh, very cool class taught by this uh, guy from NASA who just did this in the summer for fun. And he taught us all kinds of like interesting, weird things about the world that I still remember. But he had this four books that were on like fluid mechanics. He's like, these are great books. And um, you guys, uh, there's, you know, 20 of you, but only four people can, I only have four books, only four books can get them, but you got to do something really special for it. And he left them up there and then he told us what the special thing was. So I was like, how do I get this book? Um, and then I went to a friend's room like a week later and I saw he had the book. And I was like, how did you get that book? And uh, he wouldn't tell me, wouldn't tell me. And finally it came out, he just went up there and took it. The special thing you had to do was just go up after class and take it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go we'll steal the book. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, so you just steal it. That's exactly what I said, I think. It's <laughs> So then I went and I sold the book the next day, and that's and then I I read through it. And there was actually half of the Navier-Stokes equations, so that's how I learned about the Navier-Stokes equations originally. Wow, wow! All right, I'm gonna remember that one. Stacks of books for students to steal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I promised Art we weren't gonna talk about this. So here comes the hypocrisy. Um, there, to to go back to variation just a little bit. You know, you you just talked about space filling, and that just creates images in my head immediately. 
and those images lead to who is better at it and, and the disparities among species. And this is where I, saw, I told Art we probably shouldn't talk about it, but let's talk about it. Among individual variation, because at the end of the day, I mean, the sort of evolutionary biologists that we are, we think in the kind of starting at the organism and, and building up and down. So what do we know about variation? I think among species, it's pretty obvious, but we can talk about that. But within species, how much do we know? How much do we know? I know that. That's, and the answer is not very much. <laughs> there's not much. <laughs> okay. Quick conversation. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's an interesting question. So we should talk about it. I've tried hard to get as much data as I can for humans, either like lung or um, human head and torso or tumors to like pull out data and try to compare and see what we can say and look at the variations. That's been one of my sort of missions. And I have gotten some data to like look at general properties. But looking at like for something like, and I actually we even have tried to look at things like space filling. I had a, a couple of undergrads look at that and try to look at it carefully. So there is variation. But the issue is, you know, we're looking at like, I have like 20 subjects out of like, you know, 6 billion or something, right? So I think that the sample size to say anything very general is just too small. So I, I would say variation definitely exists. And there's variation of different types, like sort of in the asymmetry, symmetry, the amount of space filling. To draw stronger conclusions, I feel like we just need a a bigger pool size. I will say thinking about across speed, I mean, to try just conjecture a little bit, one thing that's always been to me, and again, I'm no expert in this, so if someone who's a veterinarian says I'm wrong, they should they should calm down. But what I've always been told and heard is that like dog hearts, for example, that you have the coronary artery, which feeds the heart um, oxygen itself, because the heart also needs oxygen. Um, that ours, it's really like a branching tree structure. And that's, you know, when we have heart attacks, it's often because there is, you know, some blockage or some problem there. But in dogs, they have much more cross-linkages among the vessels there. It's not as much of a tree. You have, like, mostly more grid-like to sort of avoid um, the blockages. And so I've always wondered, like, why, you know, why that developed in some species, not others? Because it seems like heart attacks are a big problem for, for humans, at least the ages we live to be now. So why wouldn't we develop something like that, too? And maybe there is variation across humans and that kind of thing. I don't know the answer to that, but maybe there is variation for, like, coronary artery pieces. And there certainly are, there are, there are diseases in humans, for example, like there are like peripheral arterial disease. There are other, there's actually a whole host of diseases that have to do with your vessel system, either not being developed enough, not branching enough, um, getting too many cross connections. So there are a whole, whole host of disease. And I, I have gotten work with people trying to create mouse models similar to that before. It's like a variation of that as well. So I looked at that some as well, but it's, um, so there is variation. There's clearly some of the negative side. We can see the consequences more clearly. But if you looked in a finer grain way across all of humanity, I imagine you would see some positive ones too. Are there doctors that are paying attention to network theory and thinking about, you know, variation at some kind of global level? I think there are a handful of doctors I know who do like research at, you know, UCLA and other places who are, but they're mainly research they're mainly researchers, to be honest, who are MDs. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to actual MDs in practice. And so clinically, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I'm hoping that we can be one to get there and convince them why it's important to do. I mean one reason I think it's important that I've always talked about too is that there's for tumors, thinking about tumor growth and tumor vasculature, I think it might help. That's been one of the things I've been pushing for years, trying to get there. We're not there, but trying to create something more diagnostic in terms of tumor vasculature that could be helpful in imaging tumors. But nothing where it could be really practically consequential is um, things like artificial hearts. At least the last time I looked, they still they, they mostly put out blood in sort of like a steady steady stream of flow as opposed to like a pump. And because of that, it's like the larger vessels really aren't optimized for like that steady stream. They're sort of optimized to 
eliminate wave reflections for these uh, pulsatile flow. So I'm not sure actually that they are. I mean, obviously, that artificial heart's a lot better than having heart failure, and it obviously works for some set of years. But you may, I'm not sure you couldn't do better with some sort of pump system or some sort of thinking more clearly or or cleverly about how that flow coming out of the artificial heart would map onto the large vessels and the way they're they're sort of optimized to eliminate reflections and flow and things like that. See, Van, that's that's one thing that I think is is really compelling and sort of I mean surprising that it's not in medicine, but it's probably my ignorance. You can, from this perspective, come up with optimality, right? So so you could ask about in a in a way, I mean, I know there are technical limitations on getting all the information you would need, but you could ask about individual variation with respect to optimality and sort of have, you know, something much more specific than we often have in a diagnostic sense. I think so. In fact, what I'd love to do, even to the people I the you know, the radiology and other people I work with in imaging, I'm like what I'm like, what I really want is to have as much a big as large a set of data as you can give me of just any vessels you have and just go for it. And they're like, well, that's not the way it works. You have to like submit a proposal to say like why you need this age range, why you need this sex, what's the study for, why do you need this body region? And I've worked several times trying to say like, well, fill out something. I just need a huge amount of data, but it's it's very hard to get that to be honest. I mean, maybe someone who's um, more skilled than me could do it, but it's 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 hard to get just like a large set of data and go at it because of, because of I mean, sensibly because there's lots of like medical restrictions and clinical restrictions about not misusing data. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, just to point you where we think we'd like to go, um, like talk in a minute about the relationships between branching network structure and metabolic scaling. Um, but maybe just before we do that, let's also talk about one thing you mentioned just in passing a few times, but we haven't focused on it. And that is uh, neural systems and the sort of branching aspects of the way neurons connect to one another. And, and you mentioned that there's these similarities in the underlying equations that describe how electricity moves in neurons and fluids move in in tubular systems but let's just let's just dwell on that for a minute so so how similar are the brain networks to cardiovascular or plant xylem networks so one difference I before is just instead of having like a heart and a branching network you have more like billions of like cell hearts and branching networks connected so that makes it very complicated uh, but if you sort of isolate say single neurons for a single cell, for a single neuron, the trees are much, much smaller compared to like the cardiovascular system. They do change in radius and length as you go down, but not as quickly as for the regular cardiovascular system. Um, but we can still use electricity circuit equations to um, model them, ask what's going on with them, what structures do we see? And we do, um, and this is work with a, a graduate student um, who really led this, um, Pahaley de Sai looking at saying, you know, for we say for the blood vessel system, we sort of optimize power minimization and space filling. And then for neural networks, that may or may not be what you want to optimize. So if we try a few different things you could optimize, what do we actually see that maps onto the structures we see? And one thing is, you know, again, sort of energy minimization in terms of electricity, not the blood, that's sort of a similar concept. But you also might want to maximize the time or the speed for the electricity to flow through either because there's a danger and you want to have a warning signal as fast as possible, or you, you know, need to react and you need to signal go from your brain to your hand as fast as possible to react when you're fighting or defending yourself, or for computational speed, all kinds of things. It might be speed's important. So we sort of put in speed as an option, power minimization as an option, um, material constraints, things like that. 
And what you see is for some neural um, neuron types, this time minimization seems to be the dominant the dominant structures we see. And, and other ones, it's the energy minimization seems to be the dominant structure we see. And at least, you know, in a hand wavy kind of way, it maps on to what you'd expect for things you're sort of trying to try to be as fast as possible on versus things you're not. It's really cool. So Art promised that we're going to go on to metabolic scaling. So let me pop this in here as in transition, because th there was a statement in this, this paper by your student that blew me away. Our model predicts quarter power scaling relationships between conduction time delay and species body size, blah, blah, blah. That leads you on to hemispheric specialization in larger animals. Can you, can you connect those dots? That's fantastic. Well, right. <laughs> and that's a good question. So I think the the quarter power is just saying that the conduction time speed, you're trying to keep the time as fast as possible, even as you get bigger, but the times are going to take longer as you get bigger. And therefore to create like a unit um, that can do things in a reasonable amount of time, like a computation amount of time you need it, you have to create like smaller chunks within the uh, brain or possibly hemispheres to create like distance scales that, that correspond to time scales at which you need computation or tasks performed at. Those are some big dots to connect. I won't lie, but that's the, <laughs> but that's the, <laughs> that's the idea. <laughs> go big or go home. <laughs> but we were impressed even that we could could make those predictions and see some support for it. Like we, because we wondered for a long time. Like you know, if you get a bigger and bigger brain, you have longer, longer distance scales and metabolism slower. Is our brain slower than a mouse's? Is our brain slower than a fly's? I mean, and the answer is probably yes. Not linearly slower, but we probably are slower. Oh, that's really neat. Well, let's let's transition to the scaling. Um, we've talked about a lot of aspects of you know, the characteristics of branching networks. Um, let's link that up to this other big body of theory, which is about metabolic scaling. And so what is the relationship between those two things and how sort of quantitatively are they linked? So the way, at least to my mind, the way I think about it is that metabolic scaling theory is an even broader set of things that includes how vital ecological rates and times or physiological rates and times depend on body size. And all the branching network stuff we're talking about sort of, I'd say, underpins or underlies that. It sort of gives you a basis to sort of understand where that comes from and even try to predict where it comes from for the body size dependence. But then metabolic scaling theory also includes, for example, how things depend on body temperature. And if you increase or decrease temperature for ectotherms, how is that going to affect their heart rate or breathing rate or population growth rate or survival and so sort of metabolic scaling theory is putting the size dependence and the temperature dependence together and trying to use that as sort of a baseline across lots of different species where we don't necessarily can't necessarily measure everything and don't have everything. We have a pretty good like baseline estimate for how to think about like a whole system for how, you know, we're going to put together a whole ecosystem, what consumption rate or reproduction rates might look for to, to sort of build a theory out of this. Yeah, yeah. So what, maybe you can just link up for us this idea of flows through networks, I guess maybe cardiovascular system, so blood flow through the cardiovascular system, and the three-quarter power scaling of, of metabolism. So what, what do you think the links are there? I know that's that's a big one we can talk about. for. No, that's good, actually. That's perfect. So essentially, we were talking before about optimizing the branching of the network. And for the blood vessel system, it's often framed in terms of minimizing the energy or the power you have to use to deliver the oxygen resources. So if you go through that calculation, what you get out of the end is you can calculate the sizes of all the vessels and the numbers of all the vessels. And in particular, you can calculate the number of capillaries. And the number of capillaries scales like the body size of the organism to the three-fourths power. So basically, um, because you're able to sort of use this geometry and this branching to sort of optimize and maximally make things maximally efficient for reaching around, 
you can have the number of capillaries not increasing linearly, but but less than linearly. And then if we assume that all of the um, oxygen transfer happens to capillaries, which is a pretty good assumption, we assume that metabolic rate is basically driven by the sort of total oxygen um, supply. So that's going to go like a mass three quarters for the metabolic rate. And it relates the whole the whole body because you have to, like the space filling part again, right? We have to get capillaries close enough to every cell to feed it. That fills out the volume. And that volume is related to mass, assuming that the density is about you know a little bigger than water. You sort of relate the two, that the cardiovascular system sort of pumps the oxygen, which is the metabolic rate, and has to fill out the body, which is body size. And by optimizing the, the energy or the power, you get a prediction for the number of capillaries, which is that mass three quarters, which maps on to the total metabolic rate, essentially. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so let me ask it in a slightly different way. So do you envision it as an organism has a metabolic rate and it's the job of the cardiovascular system to supply the oxygen at the rate that it needs? Or do you imagine that the cardiovascular system has some ability to, to deliver oxygen and that's what essentially constrains the metabolic rate to be a particular thing? So is it a supply or a demand thing? I tend to think of it more as you're trying to minimize energy and minimize maybe construction cost. And you're, so in a sense, it's more about that supply. You're sort of then sort of not starving the cells, but you're sort of making the cells run as leanly as possible. Like you're trying to like, actually what it really does is it slows them down, right? We do run a little slower than smaller organisms. So it's slowing them down to sort of match match and map onto everything. So I think of it as more, I think of it more from the supply side. However, through natural selection, and things becoming, you know, genetically encoded in the developmental process. We talked about earlier, how does the developmental work? I'm sure um, to some extent it is encoded and it becomes sort of like this, like it becomes programmed in a way. So I, I still think of it more from the supply side, but I think that supply side becomes programmed through natural selection over generations. So if you, I mean, you're talking about the average cell of a big animal being less active than the small animals, and that's definitely what we observe. But what happens during emergencies? Yeah, so then, so for example, you look at like maximum metabolic rates, which is um, sort of like when you're trying to run as fast as possible or an emergency, you're trying to do as much as possible. And you look at the scaling rules for that, that's not three quarters, actually. It's more like 0.9, well, 0.88, 0.91, say around 0.9. So it doesn't get all the way up to linear, but it's much closer. So that your ability to um, go up to the maximum is much closer to linear. And in fact, uh, along that line of reasoning, we do have capillaries we close off, like when we're not exercising. When you exercise and you like or have a higher de- have a higher demand, you do open up capillaries. So on the demand side, that's one of sort of the um, flexible labile parts of the system is you can open up capillaries when you need them if you're in a high oxygen demand situation, and, and then you effectively expand the size of the network and you expand that number of capillaries for the maximum for emergencies. And one other sort of thought that occurs to me is if you think about um, like race horses, race horses are artificially selected to be fast runners. And they're, they're, therefore, they're probably artificially selected to maximize metabolic rate. They're not selected to be energy efficient. They're probably selected to be energy maximizers. And again, I'd love to do a study that could really show that in detail, like really like the vessels to show that. But they don't live as long as they should for their, for their body size. And so one of the ideas is maybe they're paying a penalty for that lack of power energy efficiency by just optimizing how fast they can run in a, a sort of a short-term solution again kind of thing. I mean, that's really compelling, but there's still a little piece that I have a hard time getting my head around. So if you go from a lower activity at the level of cell and you have this reserve capacity that you can recruit if you're a larger organism, does that imply that the cost of that mobilization is not 
that big of a deal because there's a much larger cost that has to be paid for bigger animals than smaller ones. And that seems counter to the logic that you just used about, you know, supply side. So thinking of the top of the top of my head, I think some of that cost is the anaerobic part, right? It's sort of like through um, glycolysis and things like that. And then, you know, one of the costs you pay for that is like lactic acid buildup afterwards or things like that, that you do pay that cost. So I think there is a cost sort of outside of the system. You do pay some penalty for it. I, well, so that'd be interesting. I wonder if you could look to see if that penalty scales. With, like, I wonder if there is any way to measure like lactic acid buildup or uh, or some fraction of glycolysis like that, but you could actually try to measure if that cost is scaling somehow. That's like, actually, that's a good idea. A little while ago, we talked to Dan Nicholson, who's a philosopher of biology, philosopher and historian at George Mason. And it was about sort of the machine, organisms as machine metaphor. Now, we're not going to ask you necessarily to walk down that road, but um, I'm just interested about your perspective on metaphors in biology. Branching, you know, really immediately brings to mind uh, other possible uses of metaphors. So how, how do you, do you have one? Have you sort of, is there a metaphor that's appropriate for thinking about branching and living systems? Yeah. I guess I'm trying to think exactly which the metaphor would be. For me, the... the the trees so like visible and visceral somehow to me. I don't need a metaphor for it because the branching. <laughs> it's, <there>. a <laughs> <laughs> it's a tree. <laughs> On the other hand, to think about what the mathematical consequences are, and I've talked to Jeffrey Rest about this too. We've talked, talked about like how can we explain like you know trade-offs of dimensions, like folding sheets and putting them in the washers and dry. I mean, so I think you know for different quantitative conclusions, I've tried to come up with metaphors at times, but for the branching network itself. It's already so like visceral somehow that I, I don't, I guess. But I do use, met- I mean, the, the truth is though, I do use metaphors all the time, I think. I think I try to do, I, do, I think a lot of my science is by um, intuition in a sense, intuition guided by metaphor. And I, and I, I it's interesting because I feel like, I know some scientists who would say, that other scientists think that's like a bad idea. I think you shouldn't use intuition somehow. But my thing is, I mean, I have a lot of ideas that way and some are bad and some are good. And the trick is, I think, is to like, you know, press hard on them and see which ones turn out to be bad and which ones be good. Like, I think it's just good to generate ideas. Metaphors are very useful for generating ideas. And then what you have to do is just press on it and see, like, is that make sense? Or was it just like some harebrained idea I had? You know, that's the, yeah. that's the real process of yeah. science to me. Or somebody else does it for you, right? There are editors and referees that sort of apply that pressure. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's true, too. I like for it to happen earlier than that, but that does happen. You're too. Dr. Savage. This is <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> um, let, let me ask, a, I guess, moving from philosophy to a super practical thing, which is, is the work you're doing on networks, do you think it has practical implications for the way design systems should, should be designed? Like, you know, water distribution networks in cities or the way the web is designed, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think... I mentioned the artificial heart earlier as one example, but water distribution in cities is, is perfect. That's actually one of the ones that I've brought up before. And again, I wish I could find data for how that actually works in a city. Like I, <laughs> cause it seems like you'd want it to be like a pump and go through like as p- far as possible, this like um, reflection minimizing large pipes until the very end somehow. But I don't know if that's how it actually works. I mean, I do know for electric power lines, for example, for electric grids, you know, I don't know if you know, there, like there's this whole fight between people about like whether AC current or DC current is better. And there's like Tesla and Franklin. And so, um, so one of the things about AC is that um, 
effectively it is like a wave and the with this called impedance matching to minimize reflections of like blood flow at the junctions is the same math the same equations to minimize reflections of basically well Im- impedance mismatches of electricity and that's one of the reasons like ac is so good for like electric power lines you can send out these big power lines and you can minimize you can basically get rid of impedance mismatches you can do impedance matching and let that be like it's like getting rid of ray reflections so you can have like flow of electricity over large, large distances, losing very, very little power, very, very little energy. So that's one that I know does take advantage of that kind of thinking. So would you say that AC is like a cardiovascular system with a heart that's pumping and DC is like the plant xylem tubes, you know, with sort of a, a constant flow? I would say it's something like that. I definitely would say AC is like the, like the heart blood system. And DC, I guess, I think that is probably a pretty good analogy to plan, too. I think that's true. Yeah, I do like that. (laughs) See, there's the metaphor. All right, there it is. Great. (laughs) (laughs) So then in in the past, Cynthia Downs, a colleague and I, have contacted you about some some work that we're doing on on the immune system and scaling in particular. But I want to stick with, try to connect it back to branching in particular, but maybe not talk about immunity specifically. Talk about defense. You, You talk about water distribution, water supply in cities. What about the application of your your line of research, your line of thinking to policing or defending the populace. I mean, not, not necessarily just in cities, at, at any scale. We, we haven't been able to find a lot on that front out in the literature. I'm just wondering if you thought about it in a sort of basic way or if we're missing data sets that you know of. That's a good question. And honestly, I haven't thought of that. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you thinking about right now, top of my head, the theme. I mean, I guess it's like I was saying before, like the cardiovascular system is like delivering blood. And the plant system is more like collecting sunlight. So it's more like on the collection end. I guess you'd be collecting criminals or crime somehow. But it's more about how do you put out feelers or detection systems to find that. I, and Jeffrey West, I know, he's done a lot of work on cities. But not this question that I know of. But more like if you want to put out sensors into the city to measure light or sound or like take measurements of the city, like what's the best way to do it? Do you want to do like a uniform distribution across the city or do you want to put more in the middle and fewer in the out? You know, that kind of question, um, which strikes me as related, but I haven't seen it related to um, this particular kind of defense or policing or criminal. I do know there are people at UCLA that do do these like police maps, like for Philadelphia, Los Angeles, different cities. And they do have like maps of like almost real time maps, like updated daily, of, like where crimes take place. And like, you, so you could get a lot of data on the, on that side of it. And then they given that as input, how would you divine like some sort of, how would you devise some sort of like policing system to like sort of maximum work? Of course, I guess into other kinds of ethical questions as well. I don't know. I like the idea. So in a, in a more generic sense, I mean, branching with regard to defense, has that ever entered, entered your head about in, in animals and plants to what extent the networks might be organized for defense? That's a good question. I mean, certainly, you know, in terms of immune system stuff, you think for detection or for delivering some sort of like, you know, um, agent to help kill, that would certainly be a part of it. And I, I know um, just off the top of my head, I think Alan Perelson and maybe Melanie Moses wrote a couple of papers like thinking about those ideas. So I think it makes sense, but I but I've not done that myself and I don't know. If- yeah, theoretical immunology seems to still be a fairly small uh, r- small group. So you know, a lot of questions to tackle, only so many people doing it. Exactly. Right? Well, good. Anything else, Van? This has been really fantastic. I think that's it. No, thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate you having me on here. It was really great. It was, it was a lot of fun. I think we could all go on and especially talk scaling for several more hours. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just give a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Next up on Big Biology is one of our biggest episodes yet. In fact, it's so big that we're delaying release for a couple of weeks. June 9th, to be exact. To coincide with a major event coming to a movie screen near you. For now, we'll keep it a surprise, but watch our social media feeds for hints. Thanks to Ruth Demery and Brad Van Perrotin for producing this episode, and to Steve Lane, who manages the website. Thanks also to interns Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, Natasha Damright, and Kyle Smith, who help with social media and script writing. Keating Shimeri produces our amazing cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello.